Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's guest is Michael Marnie, co-founder of the Barclay Partnership. Michael was one of the four founding partners of the Barclay Partnership, growing it from an idea to where it is today. In 2018, Michael retired from Barclay and now works with a number of consulting firms, helping them shape their business strategies. Founded in 1990, the Barclay Partnership is an independent management consultancy who work with many household names and global organisations to help them develop strategies and transform their businesses. The Barclay Partnership are unique in a number of ways and have successfully grown their business while doing the opposite of what most people would consider conventional consulting wisdom. For example, they are industry agnostic, they only recruit from the upper grades in consulting, they have an extremely low partner-to-consultant ratio, and they are heavily focused on limiting the amount of travel that their consultants have to do while delivering for their clients. The fascinating thing about Barclay is that they've been able to build a thriving business by doing all of this. And as Michael explained in our conversation, they've created a place that the partners and consultants want to work. Knowing some of the Barclay story beforehand as I did, I've always been intrigued by their business model and how they'd been so successful while pursuing such an unorthodox approach. 
So when I was introduced to Michael, I jumped at the chance to get him on the show. We cover so many interesting topics in this conversation, including what led Michael and his co-founders to launch Barclay and how they managed to survive their early years, launching the business as they did just before the 1991 recession. The Barclay Partnership business model and how the team decided to set the firm up as they did. And Michael's advice to others thinking about launching their own consulting businesses. I really enjoyed this conversation with Michael and it was great to get so much advice and insight from someone who has been involved in the industry for as long as he has. If you are a partner thinking about how to improve your own business or a consultant thinking about going out on your own, then this interview is a must listen. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Michael Marnie. Hi there, Michael. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, and thank you for having me to your lovely home to record. I'm really looking forward to this. So to kick things off, for those who maybe don't know you so well, it'd be great to just find out about your career so far and how you got to where you are today. Oh, that's a big question to start off with. So you go back a long time, 1980, graduated, or thereabouts. And in those days, hard to think back to it, but computers were relatively new. I did uh, electronics engineering and computer science at University College London. And where do you go? Most of the people on my course headed off to the city because they could all program in COBOL and do these great things. But I went off to a software house because it was much more exciting. So I was loaded to program satellite systems, military systems, all sorts of really state-of-the-art stuff. But after about three years, I realized that this was much, much more exciting and, and I would say where the, where the brightest graduates went. But the guys in the city doing the boring COBOL program were earning a lot more money than me and having a much better, much better life. So I made a, a big change straight away, went and joined um, Chase Manhattan Bank as a, a, a systems auditor. It's quite interesting. They, they had this idea that any major program they were doing, uh, they, they, they ranked it on risk to the business and to, to their customers. And uh, there were six of us uh, for the whole of Middle East and Africa and Europe. And uh, it's quite a broad region, isn't it, for six years? Six of us. And uh, what would happen is if there was a project, there was one of us would go in and go up to the program project manager and say, hello, I'm from audit, systems audit, and I've come here to audit your what you're doing in terms of the technical capabilities of this program and your managerial capabilities. Right. So as a tw- as twenty five year old, this was this was this was a bit tough. One of my favourite ones was um, Chase had taken over a bank in Holland, and the Dutch government said, "Look, you can have a, a banking license in Holland if you take over our awful telebanking business we've got." So Chase had to go in and turn this into a proper bank, which meant changing all their computer systems, all their operations, everything. So you can imagine this is this is a really big program, and the guy running it was quite a serious program manager. So one day, 25-year-old me turned up and said, I'm going to audit you. Uh, He wasn't best pleased. We built a rapport after a little while. But on that, I I learned a huge amount that was going to help me with the rest of my career because it it meant I understood how programs could be run. More importantly, how you actually manage to get on with people. So how can I get this guy to trust me and realise that actually I'm not just a nuisance and I I could, could help him. So I did all that. And while I was at Chase, came across, suddenly saw in the corner, these strange people I'd never come across before, which were management consultants, uh, Accenture, or Anderson Consulting, as they were at the time. And I looked at them and I thought, well, they're having a good time. I'd quite like to be one of those. So I went and joined Anderson Consulting, and that was my first step into the world of consultancy. They sent me off to Newcastle on a pensions program, which is probably still going. Uh, (laughs) And there was 
hundred or so of us up there from all around the world working in Long Benton, 12,000 people in porter cabins on the, on the outskirts of Newcastle. And uh, there I sort of learned about actually the, the innards of a big programme and things mm. going on. But great fun. But then as something was important for, for, for when we set up Barclay, people's lives change. So in your 20s, you know, up, flying up every Monday morning to Newcastle, coming back on Friday is quite fun. But you get married, you have children, and, uh, and it's, not, it's not what you want anymore. So I ended up leaving there and going off to a company called Sear that nobody will ever have heard of now. And Sear <laughs> sold, me, sold me a pup, actually. So I was sitting in Newcastle panicking. The minute you want to leave a job, you start panicking, and particularly if you're in Newcastle because you can't go to interviews, you, 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 there's no way out. Terrible feeling of, of I'm trapped. And uh, Sear came along and they had a brilliant proposition. They said, uh, look, if you really want to make money, you don't want to do consultancy. You want to do stuff that leverages. Uh, what does leverage mean? That's a great, great word. And so what we do is we have got all the component parts that startup businesses need. We have a management consultancy business. That's what you would join, Michael. We've got a marketing business consultancy. We've got a recruitment consultancy. We've got a corporate finance consultancy. We've also got a secretarial recruitment uh, thing, which was, <laughs> I don't know why that fitted in. And what we do is we sell our services. We, we find startup businesses. And instead of uh, getting fees, we take equity in those businesses. Equity, you know, that's a big word as well. And if we're doing what we do, these companies will grow. And in five years' time, we make a shed load of money and it's all Shazam. And I bought this because I was wide-eyed 30-year-old. Great idea. I said in nine months, and I learned more in those nine months I've ever learned since because first thing I, I tell anybody listening to this talk, you learn more when things are going wrong than when things are going right. So I learned how not to do it. So the couple of things I learned from that, which sounds pretty obvious, one is this one thing having a big idea. Mm. It's another thing making it happen. And the reason they didn't make it happen was they had bad people. They didn't have the right people. So I would say this. So actually the consultancy bit, it was six of us. And we were really good. The rest of it, there was sort of 45 other people and they were useless, didn't know what they were doing. We were lucky in our little bit that our major client was Marks and Spencer. So as this company um, was floundering uh, through my nine months, we did what a lot of businesses do. We hived off, we, we left, we set up Barclay Partnership and Marks and Spencer said, that's fine, we don't care whose name is on the invoice as long as it's you guys. So I learned my second lesson, which is, it's about the relationships. So that's the thing for me. It's about the people you've got working for you. It's about the relationships with your clients. And those are the two fundamental facts I learned in those nine months. Help me place that, because I think it brings us quite nicely onto the, to the Barclay story. So the, the founders of Barclay were the, the six seer. There were four of the six. Ooh, how did you, what happened to the other two? Oh, <laughs> they might be listening to this. <laughs> so um, what's fascinating at the time? I think um, there are, Two complete views in most people that do consultancy. One, one is the desire to be autonomous and do your own thing and work on your own thing. And there's also a big desire to be part of a team. Now, depending where you are on that spectrum, if you want to be, you really want to be on part of a team, I would say to people, your best place to be is in a big consultancy firm. Because in there, part of a big team, you're never going to be right at the sharp end of on your own with a client. You can be looked after. They've got all sorts of methodologies. They've got all stuff to make you feel happy and in your team. If you just want to be autonomous, then the best thing is to be an independent consultant because 
you're in charge of your own career, you're in charge of who you work for and do the thing. I'm a strange breed where I, I have a need for both of those things, which is what Barclay did for me, because to not Barclay, I'm part of, in those early days, four of us, we were part of a team, and yet I feel and still feel that I'm totally autonomous in what I'm doing with my clients and how I'm dealing with what I'm doing. So Barclay was a wonderful construct for people that want to be autonomous, but also want to be part of a team. You'd always go back to the, the, the ranch and feel you're part of a team. And we'll come on to more about the, the cultural side, because I know that from the little I do know about Barclay, that, that strikes me as, as quite unique. Actually, I find... no, sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, go for um, it. Just to remind you, you asked me about what happened to the other two, and I think what happened to the other two was they went off to be independent contractors. So when we set Barclay up, it's quite a, it was quite an interesting thing where two of us were working full-time assignments for Marks & Spencer, but two weren't. So the, the, the leap of faith you have to make in that situation is to say, I could stay working full-time for Marks and & Spencer and take all the fees, or I could put the fees into the pot and only have half of them because those two guys aren't in anything. And I can believe that over the fullness of time, they're going to be marketing us and they're going to be doing things which are not as, uh, they're not earning fees directly. And that is at the heart of, I think, any partnership or group of people mm. that set up a consultancy together. How do you measure the values of doing work versus getting work, lunching, messing about, reading books, and how does it all go together? So the other two guys decided we're just going to go and be independent consultants. Ah, well, and yeah, it's, it's good to know. I'm, I'm, when people say things like that, I'm always curious what happened to the, you know, yeah. the others, and, and particularly for the reason being that a number of my listeners are are either consulting entrepreneurs themselves or, or have aspirations to to go out on their own and launch their own, own consultancy. And I think I'd be interested on on that point of actually the conversations or, or that decision point, because like you said, the, the SEA business wasn't working out or wasn't going well. Now, two of the six said, right, well, we'll just go and, you know, we'll go and be independents. But actually, what led the four of you to say, you know, let's try this on our own versus, you know, let's go to a big consultancy or or conversely let's go and join another startup consultancy and just take our skills there i think i think some of it is is, is just personal it, it mm. it's, it's what motivates you and it goes back to my point do you want to be part of a team do you not want to be part of a team what absolutely motivates you we all liked each other and trusted each other which is a really important mm. thing and respected each other so we all had complementary skills i think and we could see that that and the sense you can't test at time, but that we will be stronger together than we will be individually is a is something you can't quite quantify. So that was it. We just thought we'll do this together. The other thing I would say, though, that struck me over the years, it's very easy when you think about how these things set up to post-rationalize, and it mm. all looks very, you know, we were these wonderful entrepreneurs that all went off with a great idea. But actually, I think that a lot of people setting businesses up is because they haven't got any real options. So if you think about it, been at, I've been at Anderson Consulting. I've been at this terrible disaster of a company for nine months. What was facing me at 30? I could have gone back. I had a job offer from KPMG in one of their regional offices. I could have gone, you know, some consultancy. But at the time, I'd left Anderson. And Anderson, they still do, I think, did a great culture, which is if you work for them, they do in, in, imbibe in you the fact that you're working for the best consultancy on earth and that you know, you're one of the SAS of consultancy. And if you go anywhere else, second rate. So the thought of going to KPMG would just, would just be disastrous, a terrible thought. So I was almost had no choice. I had a, a six-month-old child, uh, had a wife who didn't know any of this was going on, and uh, 
what do I do? So although it looks, looking back on it, you know, great, great entrepreneurial stuff, it was almost that we, we, we had nothing else we could do. <laughs> I know that sounds terrible. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Uh, and and I, what I find so interesting about the, the, the people I speak to is the variety of ways they started their own business and then to, to, to what you said, you know, why and how. I think the other side of that, what led you to launch it, though, you mentioned there, you, know, you had a wife, you had a young child. And I speak to a lot of people who, who would love to do something like what you did or just something more entrepreneurial. But... By the time you get to thirty, you know I'm I'm now there as well. We don't have kids yet, but you have a lot of you, know, you have a lot of commitments, a lot of things you need to you know, mortgage, etc. Actually, what were the conversations either you and your wife had, or you thought about from that side of things to ensure that you were comfortable taking this risk while still being able to provide for the family or whatever it was that you know you were concerned about? Well, I think if I look back, it was you know it was a worrying time, but I think. One of the things that, uh, again, it goes back to personal things, you have to be an optimist to do these mm. things. And, you know, genuinely, if I look back, I didn't spend a lot of time worrying about the risks. I just thought, I've got these guys, we've got an opportunity, we've got, we've got a client, let's get on with it. And I think a lot of people analyse things too far. You, you, you can spend your time analysing stuff and you never do anything. So it was much more an instinct. Just get mm. on with it. We, we, I certainly didn't dwell on the risks. Did any of your your team, any of your other three no, co-founders? No, and no. I think that was part of uh, that was part of why we all got on. It was a very similar view to nothing else we can do. We, we, <laughs> we can sit here and worry about the risk, and we can get spreadsheets till we come blue in the face working out. But we can. I remember uh, sitting with them in a pub. You know, we were going through the, trying to decide. Uh, actually, one of the most interesting things is how the genesis of a company. So how do you get four people to actually agree to do this? And when do you make the, the leap? And we spent many times you know, in, in a pub going through spreadsheets uh, and everything. And the only thing that you just prompted me to think, it's a very small uh, episode, but we were going through these and uh, the spreadsheet and there was a line for um, company car. And a great example of what's changed in, in these years is in those days, the mark of success was to have a company car. I mean, nobody cares about company cars now. Nobody wants cars anymore. But to have a company car was really important. So we go down this list and uh, somebody said, well, look, I've got children. Uh, I need a company car. And uh, the other three guys, well, three of us said, all right, put company car in for you. And then we're going to move on. And we say, no, no, no. And then somebody said, oh, well, actually, I'd quite like a company car too. <laughs> so before we know it, we had four company cars uh, on some long-term lease, which was a complete disaster. And if I look back, that was the biggest mistake we made. Well, why would we? <laughs> but it was all emotional. Well, I, <laughs> even thinking about it now makes me laugh. <laughs> but that, that, I guess that, that is the interesting thing, isn't it, when you bring, bring people together to, to create a business, is that how do you, you balance those competing priorities and needs? And obviously, you know, the, the solution there was give everyone a car. But actually how you get everyone were there any other examples where you had those tensions that you had to overcome in those early days of we felt um i think i learned a lot in those nine months at, at the the other company but so one of the things we had right from the beginning was be absolutely pure on the finance side of it keep everything else out of it just this is very pure on the finance side of it was quite important for us and is that something that we'll come on to the sort of how the company grew, but did that sustain throughout? Yeah, that, no, yeah. I, think, I mean, you know, it, it changed. We, we, we do now do charity things and so on and so forth. But in those early days, it was very, it was very useful to have 
quite clear guidelines about what is company and what is not company, what is helping us to, to do this business and what's not. And talking about those early days, because it, it's something and you know, you might say actually had no effect, but looking at when you launched the company, which was sort of late 1990, if I'm correct there, almost the next year, UK went into one of the biggest recessions for a long time. I'd be really interested about actually how you navigated and overcame that period and actually what, what you learned from it. It's worth just, just pointing out one thing about Barclay, which is it's now 100 people after 30 years. So mm. that's not stellar growth in terms of numbers of people and a number of reasons for that. But one of them is we felt really strongly it is a relationship-based consultancy. All our work is really sold through relationships we've got, uh, follow-on work, referrals, and it's at the heart of it. So I think, because I have thought about the recession since then, if you've got a period where you're working deep relationships with people, it, it, it tends to protect you against the recession and so on. You know, you've got that work. Um, if you're out there trying to get work in a recession, you're, you're marketing yourself, saying, I've got something you want, come and come buy it from me. That's very, very different from, mm. I'm working with you. you, I've got a relationship with you, you know we're doing good and we know you're doing stuff. It kind of works. And I think that protected us through it. And it means that our sales over the years have been relatively... Uh, flat, not flat is the wrong word, but but not big uh, changes in it. But it's the, it's the relationship side of it. Did that persevere? Because obviously, since then we've had two recessions, and you know, we're due another one if you you believe they come every ten years. Did that same philosophy hold true in say two thousand one and two thousand seven? All the way through, all the way through. And it's the it's the it's the way you get your business. Mm. So you know, uh, we very little traditional marketing. So we're not, you don't, we're not out there saying, here's my suitcase, here's what I've got, would you like some of it? It's working with people who say, I've got something I know you can do, can you come and help me? And that's a heart of everything. So I, I, the hardest thing is what we do for a, a living, I fervently believe, is, is industry agnostic. You can run transformation programs in oil and gas, you can run it in retail, more or less, if you can run a big transformation program, you can run a big transformation program. But clients don't see that. So if I'm trying to sell you, if you're Shell and I'm trying to sell you that I can run your big transformation program, the first question you'll ask me is, have you got any experience in oil and gas? And when yeah. I say no, you just show me the door. However, if I've worked with you in retail before and you've now moved to Shell and you've got a big problem, you'll say, I'm not asking you. I don't care if you worked here. I know you can do this. I've seen you do it before. Come and help me. And then when I come and help you at Shell, I then establish a presence in Shell and I get a reputation there and I can do more work and then I can work in that. But that's how the relationship works. How did you keep those relationships warm, to use, you know, to, for want of a better word? Because in that example, you know, you might not be doing work for the, the client before they moved to Shell, but then they've moved and because you worked with them three years ago, they, they know you, they know Michael, you're a good guy. What did you do and what did you, you know, teach your team around actually keeping relationships warm in a way that builds a relationship and doesn't just feel like a sort of continual sales calls. There's a real skill in this. And I think anybody that wants to, to be successful in what we do for a living needs to be able to do this. And part of it is natural, but part of it can be learnt and it can be... But most of it is that you need to want to do it. And you need to have a genuine interest in other people and what they're up to 
It's the same as your friendships or any, all your friends. You know, why, why do people want to see you? Why do they want to go out with you? Same thing in business. It's not different. And building those relationships to take a lot of effort, a lot of work, and get into the sense where you don't think it's cynical and you don't come across as cynical is a skill in it. Um, and you just want to, need to want to do it. I like what you say there of actually that I think quite often people paint a dichotomy between how you approach friends and how you approach no, business t- people. Totally the same. And, and you're absolutely right. It, it, I tell all my eugenics clients, it's exactly the same. All the things you do in your social social life, you know, turn up on time, don't let your friends down. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Do that in business too. It's it, the, the rules of the game are exactly the same. They're not, they're not different. You've highlighted a few of the unique elements of, of Barclay and, and how you set up the business. And particularly for, for those who are less familiar, it'd be really interesting to just have a bit of a talk about some of those differences and and how you set up and develop the business model. Because what I know about Barclay is that you have some elements that I'd say are, are quite different from the traditional consulting firms, let's say. So you don't have a pyramid, you, you highlight, you know, you're, you're very much relationship focused, as I understand, very much small team, delivery team focused. It'd be great to just understand what those, for you, those core principles were and how they came about. I think uh, going right back to when there was just four of us, you know, we sat in a room and we put a whiteboard up or a flip chart and said, right, how are we going to organise ourselves? And we started off because we'd all got big, big four backgrounds. Right, we're going to remunerate ourselves, you know, it's how much, you know, X percent to how much business you brought in, blah, blah, blah. And then at one point it just dawned on me, said, hang on, there's only four of us. And each of us is as valuable to this enterprise Mm. as the others. And I go back to what I said earlier, you know, two of us are working full time, two of us aren't but that doesn't make you less or more valuable than the two guys at working. So why don't we? And we came up with something I think is unique from people I talk to is how we remunerate partners. So I think it's, it's it, right from day one, it was we said, right, every partner gets the same. Okay, if a new partner joins, then you're going to get less. But So what we'll do is each year, every partner gets 10 points. Start off on a base of 50. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be anything. And every year, every partner gets 10. As in 10 additional. 10 additional so points. Yeah, so you have 60. Is yeah, that right? 70. Now, if I became a new partner and you'd been a partner for five years, you're on 100 points and I'm on 50. So at the end of the year, you get double the profit share that I'd get. But the next year, you don't quite get double because I've got 60 and you've got 110. And I start creeping up on you. But it realised that I'm never going to ca- Mathematically, I'm never going to catch you. So we then brought in a thing which was after 10 years, there's a, a, a limit. You get no more, no more points. So you know, 150 points, no more for you. And what that says is each partner then is working at his full potential and all the other partners are kind of coming up to that full potential, but then you're at your full potential. So it seemed equitable and fair to us that that was the way it was going to work. Now, still do that. 30 years on, that works fantastic. And what it does is it brings some really good behaviours from partners. Uh, so partners will share work. So when I looked at Accenture where they're on a much more you know, you get paid performance bonuses, how much business you gain. You would never share a job with a, part, a fellow partner. But at Barclay, it's very, if, I've, if I'm overloaded and I've got a new client coming in, I'll give it to another partner. Very positive community type, type action. So that simple model brings in, we think, some fantastic behaviours amongst partners. It stops us thinking about our slice of the pie. It keeps us all thinking about how, how do we make the pie even bigger? And that, I think, is, is, is for me the epitome of, of Barclay. It demonstrates that this is a community of us all working together. Now, of course, that model, the downside of it is if people start 
misbehaving or not, or just you know, not performing. And our view always was deal with that problem if it turns up, but don't assume that's the problem. Uh, start off that everyone's working as hard as they can, doing what they can do at any one time. And I really like that view because I think it was actually my first guest, Matt Chung from Clarisis, made yeah. made a similar point that, and I know you know know Matt that so many policies are written in the net, or, or you assume the negative. You know, oh, someone's going to do wrong. I'm curious because there'll be, you know, they, I do have people who are partners in consulting firms who listen to this, and I'd be curious on the example you gave. And another one. So I'd be interested, did that ever happen? So, you know, did a partner get to 100 points and then, I'm not going to say they yeah, checked no, out, they but, slowed you know, down. Slow down. And also what happened, and maybe it was, this, this never happened either, but what happened if a new partner came in and just, you know, from a, a what they brought in perspective, you know, it was just absolutely smashing it, was bringing in a ton of work and actually said, well, hang on, guys, you know, I've done... I've done much more than my share. I want to be. I want to be accelerated through these points. Did either of those happen? And if so, how did you manage them? No, no, no. They, they, I think individual partners thought those things, <laughs> <laughs> but the the strength of the culture and the, and the fact it'd been going so long meant that people sat back. And I've seen partners over the years. You know, their the partners will have a fantastic year where loads of stuff are coming in, and then following year they haven't. They sit in the corner. You see. <laughs> And when you've seen this for 30 years, you realise there's ebb and flow and all this. So just sit back. This, this model works. And it, it's, it's, it's a, it really does. If you've got the right people, right motivated people, it, it, it's, a, it's a tremendous model. And it does, it does make people work for the common good of the whole rather than the individual good. Uh, I remember we had, um, there was a Harvest Business Review article, which is, what is the purpose of your firm? And this was many years ago when everyone was going on about mission statements and things. It's not a mission statement, it's a purpose of firm. And uh, he, used some, he used some example about Disney figuring out the purpose was to make people happy rather than doing making the best cartoon films, which mm. is, he claims, which is why they then got theme parks, wouldn't have done otherwise. Anyway, we had a, we had a discussion about what was the purpose of, 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 of the firm. And... Uh, all sorts of things, but mine, which uh, the partners <laughs> used to cringe when I said it, but actually I'd still believe it, which is the purpose of the firm was to make a place that we all want to work in. Now, why that makes you cringe is because it doesn't mention clients. You know, most people say, oh, we want to, you know, we want to do the best work for clients in possibly. No, once you say we want to create a place that we want to work in, it measures everything. So if you then get a client, do we want to work for them? If we don't want to work for them, if we think that's going to make this environment not a place we want to work, you don't work for them. Now, of course, you, you, you say, oh, we'd like a company where we all four days off a week. Uh, well, yes, well, then we're going to make no money. Is that an environment you want to work in? No. <laughs> See, but the key, key thing on, on all that, I think one of the highlights of Barclay is travel. Mm. So I mentioned before that I worked, you know, long term up in Newcastle. So one of the key things that Barclay offer, and which is why Barclay can get such great talent, I think, is we won't put you on a long-term out-of-town assignment unless, for where it is or what it is, you'd like to do it. Mm. So what we mean by that is you're not going to get stuck in Newcastle for six months plus. And that, no one else says that. Now, on the other hand, we are a consultancy firm, so you can't say you're not going to travel at all. So if you're working for BP, you need to go to Houston for two weeks, go to Houston for two weeks, working for WX Smith, you just go to Swindon for two weeks. So these things are part and parcel of it, but we will not send you off out of town. And that's 
if we send people up to, to, to Newcastle for a year and a half, does that make the environment a place we want to work in? No. So we don't do it. And, and we'll, we'll come on to the travel and some of, yeah. some of those elements because they, uh, there are a number around your, your business model that I'd say are, are unorthodox in consulting like that. And actually, I'd be really interested in exploring how you made a success of it. To your mission statement, and I really like it because I think so many corporate, large corporates have very vague mission statements that you, you can't tangibly do anything with. How did you manage if there was any tension as you grew? Because when there's four of you, you know, the we is quite easy to have a discussion in the pub. You know, do we like this? As the partnership grew, as the firm grew, you mentioned, you know, it's now 100 people. How did you keep that pulse check to make sure that the decisions that you and the leadership team were making were for the we of the whole firm and not maybe the, you know, the we of the partnership or the we of the, the founders? First, it comes from choosing the right people to be part of the partnership group. So you have to have a common view. There's always going to be a spread, a spectrum. The other point is that when it all comes down to it, you don't make many choices. You don't make many decisions, really. Once the engine starts going, the culture is there where people make decisions almost instinctively. So very few, the very few big decisions, we all have to sit down and have to have a vote. We never had a vote on anything. Never had a vote, ever. The things come along. So I think that... Group management is a wonderful way of running something when things are going well and things luckily have gone well. Well, not luckily, but they've gone well for a long time, so it's fine. I think we would, and I think anybody running a sort of consensus management like that would have real trouble in dark times when mm. you need someone to come in and say, I'm in charge. So think about Barclay, one of the things that, again, no one else does is there is no managing partner. So it is just the group. But if things went wrong i think that would that would be challenged and then so maybe it's like you say and on the good times it works how for decision making where a direction was required how, how did that work so i'm thinking and you know, this might not be directly applicable but let's say you've got a lot of clients in one industry and two partners want to go into different industries one says we'll go into to oil and gas the other says no we should go into fs is that a moot point because of your relationship network drives your demand or is that did you ever have to have a conversation like that? And how did those strategic decisions get made? Again, I'm trying to think of any real strategic decisions. Oh, no, actually, I've got one, which is moving to the US. So setting up a, a US office was mm. most recent, I think. And how that happens is, in, in a group like this, a lot of discussions over a long period of time. And I think somebody who'd come from a more traditional situation would find it quite painful so that takes a very, very long time. And in fact, the partner that was progressing this, I'm sure, found it very painful because it's about talking to people you know, individually, then come together as a group, going away again. It takes a very long time, but did it. And it's a, great, it's a great thing to happen. But you would get very frustrated, I think, if you're trying to get that, that really key strategic decision made. You start thinking, if only we had a managing partner, you could just say, yay or nay, we're doing it or we're not doing it, rather than the consensus that you have to come to. But, you know, on balance, it, it works really well. And there's, there's something coming out here around just that long-term nature of what you set up. You know, the whole, the whole partner remuneration was, was built on the idea that you would stay for at least a decade. The, you know, the decision-making, like you said, it, it sort of build the firm as it goes. And I, I'm really interested around where that came from because I've spoken to a number of consulting entrepreneurs where their goal has been build-sell. So, you know, build over two, three, four, five years, sell or merge and the thing that stands out for me with Barclay is, is everything you said and, and the longevity of the firm as an independent. Where, where did that come from? I think some of it is from what it was like in the 80s. 
which was a different time. So there was no sense in our mind that we would set the firm up as a limited company because we came from partnerships. You know, I remember being at Accenture and, and the head partner turned up and saying, you know, we're an ocean liner was the, the metaphor. You know, partners drop on, they do the work and then they drop off. But the Anderson ocean liner just keeps going. So that idea of the way to structure a professional service firm is a partnership was kind of ingrained in us and that it would be that ocean liner. Now, 30 years on, I think the world has changed. I don't think there are that many partnerships left. I think it, Anderson sold out, uh, you know, sold up. Maybe it'd be different now, I don't know. But the, the reason we did it and the longevity was, it, I think it was what we all just assumed would be the, the way to do professional services. It's a really interesting point you make around the how the generations have changed. And, and did you see, or did, did you get a sense from your, your junior team that there were any changes in that desire, you know, in the the people you you hired in the nineties may may want to stay for thirty years, but as you you know, as we moved into the noughties and where we are now, there was more of a a shift in what people wanted, or did that persevere? No, I think I think there's been a, been a huge shift in what what people want. I think that idea of a uh, job for life. So not just just we we were consultants, but all our clients. So Marks and Spencer's. Great example, you know, if you joined Marks and Spencer, you, you were there for life. They would provide you with healthcare, dentists, hairdressers. You know, it was it was it was it was it was a commune, really. Uh, <laughs> and it's not anymore. And I think all those companies have all that's all stopped. And it's true of consultancies as well. So, the the one of the big changes I think is if somebody's going to start up a consultancy now mm. or start up a business, is it's much more usual now. It, back in th- those days, it wasn't usual. The mind of everyone was join a company, be it a consultancy or not, and just stay there. So if you joined Accenture, your your idea would be, I'm going to be here and be a partner, and if I'm not, they'll they'll chuck me out. But that's what I want to do. No, people now I think uh, see it much more as let me get everything I can from this company and let me contribute as much as I can while I'm here. But let's neither of us have that sort of sense that. I'm here for life. And it's, it's, it's the last great taboo, I think, of working life, which is people talking about leaving. Right? <laughs> when I interview people, I always talk about, well, you know, you, you'll be gone uh, more than likely in, in, in four, five years' time. Terrible taboo, but it's true. And that's if people be more honest about this and see that, uh, you know, how can you, what can you give me in order that when I move on, I'm going to be better than I am now, is, is what the question that people should be asking in the interview. And that might be the crux of it. How did you, or, or how do you advise people to now, you know, to embrace that conversation and and build a, you know, let's call it an employee experience for want of a better word, that gets that mutual benefit in an open way and doesn't you know, doesn't pretend it's something it's no longer. You've put your finger right on it there because I think that is now an ongoing process. It, as I say, it's the last taboo, and I think companies are just beginning to try and open it up, and and employees as well. I would love a. Re- you know, thing where you sit down and it's just honest, which is, Michael, what can you give me over the next three to five years that's going to make me even better than I'm now and can give me a launch pad into what I want to do? You know what, Michael, I'm not quite sure what I want to do, but what is it you can give me that will help me decide what I want to do? And maybe one of those things is stay with you and become a partner here, but that's by no means what I want. Uh, I always used to say to people uh, in interview, look, if I offered you a job now, if I offered you partnership right now, the sensible thing for you to say is no. Uh, and the reason for that is you don't know me. You don't, why would you 
become a partner in this firm and put your house on the line, your wife, your children, your dogs on the line. You don't know me. What you should say to me is, I like the look of this firm. I'm going to come here and I'll work for a while. And if in that period of courtship, we kind of like each other, then let's start talking about partnership. But it's not something I'm joining you to do. And that's the honest approach that everybody should try and have. I think like you say, and I think it still is a taboo and that I know that there will have been times for myself and I'm sure for others where feeling comfortable enough to have that level of conversation, you know, the sort of the why do you want to work for us conversation, you know, the when I was 10 years applying for graduate schemes, you know, the answer was all the superlatives about how great the company was, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, I don't know if I would have felt comfortable enough or even you know, would have sort of a few years ago saying, actually, look, I'm here for a few years and then I'm then I'm off. Um, <laughs> but I think you're... I wouldn't you're, quite put it like that. No, no, of course. Yeah, it, it needs a better delivery. Um, but, but I think there is a key point you make there, actually, about how companies can play their part and actually make the people they're hiring or, or talking to feel, feel comfortable to be that open. And I want to come on to... You, you mentioned around more people starting businesses. And we'll, we'll talk about that and, and your advice for them. But I want to touch on a few more elements of the... Barclay model, just because they, they really interested me, and I, I know will be interesting for others, of the archetypal consulting firm, the, the Andersons as was, and, and, and other firms as are now, they're predicated on a big pyramid, you land and expand, you know, we've, we've all heard the cliches, and, and that's how you build a consulting business. Now, my understanding, as I say, with Barclay is those two, sort of what you might call core consulting principles, you did exactly the opposite, you, you built senior, you know, you didn't even build a barrel, you built the, sort of just the upper half. And you deliberately focused on high value roles, small teams. And I'll just be fascinated on how you made that work. Because common consulting wisdom would say you can't build a successful consulting business doing those two things. So I go back to the thing I keep mentioning, which is relationships. So what's important to us is the real relationship with your client. So if you've got a, a massive pyramid, then all the people in that pyramid just can't have those, those deep relationships. It's a place we start from. How do you make it work? Well, the lack of a pyramid, key part, I think, of, of Barclays uh, business model is the ratio of partner to consultant is about one to three and a half. Now, if you go to any other place, one to 15, perhaps, maybe even more. Now, that's got two huge advantages, I think, from, from, from a consultancy perspective. One is for the consultants themselves. So what, what I say to people, you know, you are going to have a huge amount of partner time. Now, you might think that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I passionately believe that the way consultancy is something that you need to learn uh, by watching more experienced people do it. Mm. You know, uh, I mean, our office was in Chantry Lane, and opposite ours was um, the barristers in Lincoln's Inn. And you look across there, and the barristers have figured it out 500 years. How do you become a good barrister? Well, you get a pupil and a pupil master, mm. and you watch more experienced barrister do his stuff because those are the skills of consultancy very tacit you can't write down how to do it you have to watch somebody do it uh, really good consultants are great at those soft skills and they get it from other people so having a, a situation where you have, you get a load of partner time which you get when it's one to three and a half is fantastic for people's career because they they learn how to be good consultants very very quickly and they're not hidden away so it's great for consultants, but also it's great for clients. So when I go to my client, I say, you know, you see me all the time. I'm actually working on this job. You know, I haven't got 
15 people that I'm, or I just turn up once a month and say hello to you and shake your hand. I'm here all the time. And that is great for clients. And it, it builds the relationships because they know that you're there and you're there all the time. So that works brilliantly from getting really good consultants, you've got something to offer them and you get continued work because you've got relationships. And then it, consultancy is a very simple business. It boils down to utilization fee rates. That's it. So if you've got those relationships, you work in those high levels, you can charge higher fee rates. And if you've got the relationships where you get lots of work, you've got high utilization, high utilization, high fee rates, good. <laughs> <laughs> Profitable. <laughs> well, when you put it like that, it, it sounds easy. <laughs> so that model works perfectly if you can make it work. You might not have had this, but how, how do you balance that tension though? When clients, if clients sort of, you're having that conversation and they say, well, Michael, you know, your guys are great and they're whatever day rate this is, but this other consultancy is going to give me a team of you know, seven for the same rate. What, you know, when you get that pressure on fees or is that where your relationship and the strength of it comes in or, or how do you... So I think one of the big changes in consultancy I've seen over the last 10 years is the um, growth of the procurement department. Yeah. I've never met a computer. I didn't know what they were. I, I, I remember the first person came up to me 10 years ago, maybe 15, and said, I, hello, I'm from the procurement department. I didn't know who he was. But they've, they've, they're, they're, their power, I think, is, is, is a real change in the industry over the last 10, 15 years. And we do get pressure on this sort of thing. And... I have to say, my general attempt is I don't even want to get into a discussion about that. So you know what my value is. We've mm. got a track record here and we've worked for you and we've done this. I'm not moving. And if you don't want it, we'll go somewhere. Now, it's, you know, in a fortunate position that, that we're, you know, we, we, we're so confident in what we, we provide and what our service is that you can just walk away from those discussions. If you want to buy... And also, I think there's something which is making sure you're doing the right job. So um, if you want a £500-a-day project manager, that's fine if you've got a £500-a-day project. If you've got a £100 million programme, then you don't spend £500 a day on a project manager for that. You, you just don't. You hit on two key pieces that, if you have more thoughts, would be interesting. It's actually that, that selling for value, and actually it's not you know, you're not selling 10 days of... You know, Jane or Bob's time, you're, you're selling an outcome, but also actually that picking the projects and the clients in the, you know, if, if the client, even if they do have a hundred, you know, a hundred million pound project, but they do, they only in their mind want a 500 pound a day PM, you're never going to sell them on anything no, else. No, no, and it's pointless to walk away. And I think that's where, I think that's, for me, that just resonates because it, I think so often you can chase people can be busy being busy and actually that step back of saying, well, will this client actually buy that? You know, are they in a place to buy that? Because there's no harm that they might not be at that point. No, no, no. You have to qualify these things. And, and sometimes it's just, just no point. Walk away. And was there ever, as the business grew, was there ever a conversation or a pressure or just a feeling that actually maybe we should expand? Because am I right in sort of classic parlance, you, you would recruit manager and upwards, so sort of yeah, six, yeah. seven so, years upwards. Yeah, so so I would say eight eight years' experience up, typically somebody's, there'd be a manager at Accenture. And was there, ever a, was there ever a conversation among the partners or a question of, well, you know, if we just drop that to six, well, you know, these guys, only, they need a, a lower salary, day, you know, and then you, you get your utilisation, you know, your numbers, and you go, oh, 
you know, we're all getting a bit more money this year. Was there ever that com- conversation? If so, where, you know, yeah, that comes up every three years, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's it's, and a lot of it is driven by the consultants. Uh, actually, so you get people who join as managers, and they're quite used to having bag carriers, you know, the, 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 <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so guys to do their slides for them. And so they find it quite tricky to come to, to Barclay. And it's a, it's a sort of sense of if we just had more junior people, uh, you know, they could do something. And, and it comes up every couple of years. But the figures don't work out. You know, you, you, you can do it. But the, the, the unexpected consequences, I think, of training them, of looking after them, of trying to load them, we always think in the end, no, our business model works fine. But there's always pressure to, 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 get, to get some more junior bag carriers. You've obviously done the thinking about it, and and that point sounds really interesting. And the figures actually don't work out. What were what were the ahas that actually when you did the you know, someone did the analysis, you saw this doesn't work out because actually you know is it the cost of training? Is it the impact it has on relationship? What what were the the key drivers that said actually no, this isn't you know? I, I go back to what I said earlier. I'm I passionately think the strong thing is the one to three and a half partner consultant ratio. I think the the relationship I have with my consultants, the closeness to them is really important. The minute you start making the pyramid a bit bigger that way, you as a partner begin to lose contact with people because what would happen is they'd have a relationship with the managers. I wouldn't know who these people were. And I think that would fundamentally attack some of the some of the key aspects of the, of, of the, of the model. And going back to my, is, does this make a place I want to work? It, it doesn't, it makes it worse. The other thing about junior people is we recruit seven years or so, seven years plus in. And why that's really good is at that point, the people you recruit have decided that they want to be management consultants. And also they've figured out if they're any good at it. And so we're able to see who are the, who are the really good people because they've had seven years having a go. So if you recruit at that point, much, much easier to get who are the top guys that, that, or girls that we want where if you take them out of university, much, much harder. You know, who, who's going to actually want to be a consultant? Who's going to fall by the wayside? Who's going to be any good at this? So, Again, I think it's, a, like you say, you, you can see who's in it for the long term and who's the winners and, and pick from them. So, you know, what, when you put it like that, why wouldn't you? Well, I always think of Accenture as our crash. <laughs> I'm sure they'll love that. <laughs> um, if anyone from Accenture is listening. Um, and something on your point around when you bring people in and your structure, fact check me here, so if I'm completely wrong on this, we'll move on. But my understanding is Barclay does and has always only had two grades. It has partners and consultants. Is that, is that yes, right? Yes, that's right. And then, again, it's another, I guess, a common practice in consulting of you have the grades and you, you climb the pyramid and, and it almost you, know, you obviously start the pyramid higher up, but there's still the, you know, someone would come as a manager in, a, in an Accenture, let's say, or a senior manager, et cetera. How did you structure that to give both the individuals and the clients that sort of sense of progression and, and seniority? And what I mean by that is, you know, some people like the fact that I'm aiming for promotion, I'm aiming for senior manager or director. And actually, you know, if the golf is I'm a manager right now and in five years or 10 years I can be a partner, for some I suspect that feels like too big a golf. How did you structure that career progression internally? Let's start there and we'll come on to external after. That's an interesting point. And, and so I'd say that we recruit and consultancies recruit ambitious, bright people. And 
what most consultancies figure out is that if you can put in some sort of internal tension between those, those bright people, it brings the best out of them. And you've described it. And so how do you bring in some internal tension? Well, the obvious one is grading structure. I'm an M1, I'm M2, I'm M45, I'm an M46. Tension. But how do you bring in tension? You bring in industry groups. Uh, we're working for the banking sector. We're working for industry sector. Tension. You bring in all these internal tensions, which consultancies think that brings out the best in people. And it probably does in most of them. There are also people that are bright and ambitious, but that doesn't work for them. What they want is to work in somewhere where they're not fighting or having tension with their, their, their partners. They're in a cooperative environment. And I think that's what, what Barclay tried to, to create, is a cooperative environment for bright, ambitious people. Take away all those internal tensions so that people can put all their energy into dealing with clients and doing that stuff rather than internally. So the idea of grades, we thought, won't have that for that reason. We don't have industry sectors. You know, we don't do these things. Now, of course, like everything you do, there's a downside. So the downside is actually some people, you know, people do use their grades as a way of measuring their, their, their progression. So you, what you have to do is recognize that as a downside uh, and put some mitigating factors in. So find another way internally of how you, you show people they're progressing and they're, they're moving on without having these little badges. But no, no doubt, you know, some people find it a little bit disconcerting. But as I, I, I said to uh, some consultants once, we can call you anything you like. You know, if you just tell me what you <laughs> master of the universe, we'll put that on your business card. It doesn't really matter. That'd be a great business card, yeah. wouldn't it? And they never really came back on that. So actually, I think internally it sort of it, it works now. We've done it for so long. Externally, you do occasionally come up with your know, rate cards and what, what have you. So you've got to sort of subscribe to the uh, senior manager director, put them on your rate cards. You mentioned you, you put some structures in place on the internal side. What, what were they to give people, like you say, that progression and that sense of direction without the, I love the word, you know, without that tension of the, you know, I'm a manager or a senior manager or a senior, senior, junior director or whatever they, whatever they wanted on that business card? Well, and one of the things, right from the beginning, we try not to have a lot of structure or rules or, or whatever. The view is we're recruiting grown-up people now you know they're, they're experienced are grown up so you don't have to put a load of structures around them, which you might have to do with people leaving leaving college but one of the things we did put some structure around i'm very proud of is we've got very good personal development approach and so the view was everybody's on their own ladder you're not on a ladder behind someone else that you have to climb over and so we treated everybody on their own ladder and very personal personal development Big backdrop about, you know, there's eight competencies versus six levels, which is a bit of structure, which has been anathema to, to most of us, but it works great. And it does give everybody a sense that they are progressing on their own, on their own ladder. And I think it, it works very well. And it's not to do with other people. It's not to do with how are you doing against against them. Does that make sense? It, it does. And I'm, I'm just, that point around client perception, I think, I think is a really interesting one because, because like you say, the clients will you know from a rate card procurement again you know procurement like a rate card because they can compare them yeah. and it might be back to the, the conversation we had about relationships how did you help clients understand that just because you call everyone a consultant or everyone a partner doesn't mean that there are you know only two levels of experience or expertise in in the firm when you're when you're out trying to sell the work to them yeah i think it does come back to relationships so you get to a point where your client trusts you to put the right people on a job. So they want an outcome. They want it to be, to be fixed. 
So very rarely do I have conversations with clients about, oh, he's a senior manager, he's a manager. They, 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 in my conversation with clients, they, they're not interested in that. What they want to know is, who have you got? Who can do that and what are the roles they're going to play? And they're trusting me that I'm going to put the right people in there. So as far as my clients go, I don't think they're, interested, they're, they're worried at all about, about what I call the, the consultants. But to go back to what we were talking about earlier, and then you do have the problem with procurement who do care. So very simply there, you, you, you put together a rate car and you use the, the, the non-clemature that, that they're used to. So you put down director, senior director, manager, and yeah. you put a rate card against it. And that's... It's as simple, simple, simple as that. Yes. I want to touch on something around the, the growth journey because, again, I, a number of my listeners are, are either aspiring to launch their own businesses or, or do run consulting businesses and consulting practices. And I think the elements I find so interesting around growth is that as businesses grow, they change. Um, they're one of the founders of my old consultancy and been a guest on this podcast, actually, Mohammed Mansour. You know, he, I always remember in our company meetings, used to say, um, and I've spoken to him about it on the show, is if we did things the way we did three years ago now, or we did what we did three years ago now, we would hate it because it's a different size business. You need different approaches, different structures. I'd be fascinated for you, what, if any, were the, the major inflection points? You know, was it as simple as going from four to five? Was it four to 40? Was it maybe even something that wasn't related to size? What, what was it for you that you felt that you and the partnership team had to really, say, step up your game or change how you were doing things due to where the firm had moved? So first an observation, that's a very good point. So if you take us when we started up, and you take Barclay Partnership now, two very different propositions. And I would argue different people will join them. So when we started up, we attracted some great talent from the big six. They were entrepreneurial, people who wanted to join a startup business, very excited, wanted to join that. But those people would never join Barclay now. Conversely, the people that join Barclay now are some brilliant people from the big six who want to join a really great company, but they want to join something that is established, has got certain amount of comfort and, and establishment. So they would never have joined Barclay in the startup thing. So that's quite, that's quite interesting. Now, if you draw between those a little cantilever underneath them, there's a point when you're neither one nor the other. And at that point, there was a difficult point in Barclay's development, I think, when we weren't attracting the best people because we were neither a startup nor were we a nicely uh, uh, thing. So I don't think that answered your question completely, but there, there, there was a, a point at which you either come around and start pulling up and, and beginning to attract the best people again, or you don't. So I think any consultancy I would be looking at be worrying about that point when the, the quality of the people you're attracting starts to go down a bit. And that's the reason, I think. I really like that cantilever metaphor. How did you or how do you advise others? How do you spot when that's coming? And then actually, what did you do to, to get yourself over that hump or out the other side? Well, I'd like to say I spotted it. I didn't. I spotted it in, in, in hindsight. <laughs> well, in hindsight, you know, what, what, if someone else is going through that, what, what are those indicators? Is it as simple as the CVs coming through the door aren't as good? Is it the grumblings you hear from the team? Grumblings you hear from the team. The, the, the CV, you're right, CVs aren't so good. The, the sense of quality you've got goes mm. down a bit. And it's very easy to blind yourself to that, which I think we did. And whether it was luck or judgment, but got through it. But I would give, my advice I would give to anybody is that will happen. Just be prepared for it, which I wasn't. And I, it's only when I look back, I can see that happened. But you ask about points of inflection. 
So I think that it's more to do with, I think, so that's to do with the people in the firm. But I think the, the more interesting one is a point of inflection about the management. So you start off founders, four founders, and then you make some more partners. So you go through a period when it's little band of brothers continues. And then it comes a point of inflection where the new partners start thinking, well, oh, hang on, those, those founders, you know, they, they seem to be running the place and not treating us as partners. So they have a bit of a, a, bit of a kick up. At which point it all, it all falls out and everyone sort of starts playing nicely again. But diff, slightly different set of rules. And then so they go on for a little bit on that. And then what happens is the partners all start thinking, well, we need a bit more structure around here because, you know, that partner over there is, is, is going off doing his own stuff, but we need to have a bit more of a, a concerted view of it. So you have another bit of a kick up and then you have a few more rules. And I think that's, I don't know what happens after that. I think, <laughs> I think after that, I don't know. But I think there's, there's two, two points of inflection. It talks to that point as well as the, the piece you made, you, you mentioned around the, the different type of people that joined Barclay, the sort of the early you know, entrepreneurial ones and the or equally good, but you know, maybe wanted a bit more security people who joined towards the end. How did you stay responsive to, to what the different people wanted to, to create a firm and give a firm that is what those people who first signed up wanted, but also works for the new people? Because... You know, when any naturally, when any organisation or movement grows, the there'll be the people who yeah. the people who knew the band before they were famous, yeah. and then the fans who like them because they're on the the charts. And actually, how did you balance that too? And I assume, but you know, tell me if I'm wrong, you know, keep all of those people happy and on the same bus moving forwards. Yeah, I think it's something I haven't got the answer for, but it's it's one of the, the big challenges. Is I feel very strongly that there isn't a third party. There is no company that runs it you know so i always used to say to everybody you know the whole company can stand in this room you know there's 60 of us we're all standing here. that's it there is no one else so if you've got a problem you think we're doing too much work in the public sector and you say that to me and my answer is always going to be to you what are you going to do about it because we are the only people that can do anything about this there is no third party there's nobody out there doing stuff to us some ways that you know some employees want to believe there's a third party that influences mm. everything and does it and people that i wanted to recruit were people that had the initiative to say there we we're part of this we're part of solutions we're trying to do what, what we're all doing and the danger then as you get bigger is how do you keep all the different subgroups happy so mm. just to use that example you know there might be a subgroup that do want to do more public sector work and there's a public group that doesn't want to do any public sector work at all. So how do you keep uh, a sense of, across it all? And it is to do with leadership. So I wanted a place where the leadership was not in evidence all the time. But if you take that to an extreme, then what you end up with is, is, is a kind of kibbutz or somewhere that, you know, that there's no, no leadership at all. It's, it's, so the balance is how do you have some strong leadership only when it's really, really needed. Otherwise, uh, it just all turns into a, a, a morass. I really like that point around the there is no third party because I think so often the consultancy, you know, be it Barclay, be it whoever, can be used as the third party, you know. Oh, yes, yeah. No, no, and and what, it, what, it, what it brings is it brings a sense of victimising to people, you know. Oh, it's terrible. I've been put on a horrible job somewhere. You know, I don't like it or, you know, I haven't been paid enough money. They, they have done this to me. Yeah, and it's a very negative thing when people start getting into the feeling like a victim. There isn't a they. 
there feels like there could be an inherent tension in there, though, that, okay, if I, if I believe I've got control over my destiny, let's say, in this firm, um, I'm on a job up in Newcastle, and this might just come back to the core tenants that you didn't, you know, as an organisation, you don't do this, as a team, you don't do this. But if I'm there doing a job I hate up in Newcastle, was there ever a tension where people were maybe too proactive and saying, look, I'm not doing that? Oh, brilliant point. Yes, you're absolutely right. So as you get bigger, this sense of community starts getting strained. So I want, you know, any great community has this sense, which is I do the tough stuff because it swings and roundabouts. There'll be a time when I don't have to do tough stuff. And, 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 and I'm doing that because I've got a sense of duty to you, who is in my part of my community, that we all understand how it works. As you get bigger, that does come under pressure. So the great example is willingness to travel. So Barclay's issue, which is it states, you know, we're not going to make you go on long-term out-of-town assignments. Some consultants take that as meaning, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. Now, that you do occasionally get some people and say, well, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. Now, that's really unfair on everybody else. Um, but as you get bigger, some people think that's okay. I can just be the one that says, oh, that's a bit far for me to go. So it's not an ideal world, but that's what happens as you do get bigger. And that sense of duty uh, starts, well, it's okay if I don't do this, but I would expect other people to do it. Yeah, no, and I haven't got the answer for that either. It just it is one of those things that come under the strain. But going back to your point earlier, don't bring in rules then that kind of just because one or two people are doing that. The reaction of most consultancies would be to bring a rule in, you know, write down, you know, this is under these yeah. circumstances, you have to do this, you have to do that. And that's addressing an issue because one or two people are doing it. And I'd rather just say, leave it. Completely. And I really, I really like the, the community metaphor because I think, you know, it, much like you would in your, you know, your, your local community or your your town or your village or wherever you are, it, it, there's a lot of similarities there. And I think the key difference between, say, the the organisational community and your, you know, where you live is where you live is you sort of it's a roll of the dice who you're living with. In a in an organisation, you have actively chosen from the people who've come to you to, who to pick. And I, a lot of the things that we've talked about seem to, at their root, start with getting the right people in the community, in the, you know, in the in the commune, on the bus, whatever you want to call it. And I'd be fascinated around your approach to hiring to make sure you got the right people in in the first place. So we developed a really good set of interviews, uh, processes. We put a lot of effort into doing it reasonably scientifically. However, at the base of it all, I think if you, as a good consultant, if you imagine a two-by-two two matrix and up the left-hand axis is skill, what you're good at, and the bottom axis is attitude, interpersonal skills, soft skills. So bottom left are not very smart, no interpersonal skills, you don't want to recruit them. <laughs> Top left, a lot of skills, but no interpersonal skills. Now, you don't want to recruit them either, but those are the sort of people you might find in client sites, and they're typically the DBA yeah. or the you know, database analyst, the bloke sits in the corner, everybody's frightened to talk to him, but he's considered to be the most useful person you've got. Bottom right, loads of interpersonal skills, those soft skills, not very bright, clowns. You don't want to have any clowns as well. So leads you with the top right, loads of interpersonal skills and loads of brightness. Now that is, those are the unicorns. That's the talent base you want to get after. And that, there's not many of those people around, but that is what you should spend all your time trying to find. And that's, 
that's the basis of the recruitment strategy. Well, well, and, and I'm terrible with metaphors that aren't sports. I'm not, I'm not great with sports ones. But you know, taking that metaphor, you know, you're trying to find those unicorns. But equally, there will be people who have high interpersonal skills, high technical skills, who just, you know, for whatever reason, they're, they're not your type of people, or you're not their type of people. You know, there, there will be people who prefer Barclay and people who prefer other firms, or vice versa. How did you, you know, within within the processes, actually, how did you filter for that? Was it simply, you know, you got a feeling about them? Was there... I was used to say in interviews, I'm laying out my stall for you as mm. honestly as I possibly can. I'm going to tell you all about, all about what Barclay is, what motivates us, the sorts of people that will thrive here and the sorts of people that won't. And it's up to you to look at that and decide, is that for you or not? And it's absolutely good thing to just get up from this interview and say, thanks very much, but it's not for me. And again, you know, too many people go into interviews seeing it as a competition to get the job. And it's not a competition. It should be a fact-finding exercise to say, you know, are you right for me? And that needs the, the, the interviewee to have a lot of self, self-awareness about what it is they want. So laying out the store really, really obviously. So Barclay's a good example, for instance, we talked about it earlier, but if, if you the sort of person that wants to be fairly autonomous, a lot of uh, working on your own, it's a great place. If you like to be working in teams all the time and you like a lot more support and you need a lot of methodologies and you need something around you, then it's not the right company for you. And it doesn't mean you're a bad person or you're not good at consultant. It's just this is the wrong environment. So lay the stall out. Well, and I really like that, you know, and a lot of this comes back to the sort of the confidence and the view, you know, view of the candidate as well and, and, and the, the hiring firm as well of, of that, you know, you're on a fact find, you know, we all appreciate that as a candidate, an interview is about them, the firm finding out about you. But likewise, I think the firm is, it's about you finding out about the firm. Yeah. I think it might be, it's, it's not the end of the market you deal with, but I, I know a number of people applying for graduate jobs and, and businesses and consultancies have started to introduce one-way video interviews, which I personally think is one of the, the worst, the, the most abhorrent thing, no, abhorrent's probably too strong, but I think one of the most upsetting things I've ever heard, because exactly like you say, it's it's entirely one way. You know, it's not, I can't get a sense of what Michael's like and what Barclay's like, I'm just talking into a machine. And I think... <laughs> that's just nuts. Well, I, and I agree, but I and I and I think that's you know the, the point of the, the it's a tangent, but it comes back to that point you make of actually the interview process is about a relationship and a you know it's a courtship like any other of deciding if a firm wants to wants to hire you and it it's getting in the position where you're willing to do that. I think it's a you know a really good piece of piece of guidance. I'm curious to turn actually, Michael. Now to we we talked a bit about the startup journey for Barclay. You also made the point earlier that. Starting a business nowadays would be very different. You know, if you were starting it, would be be very different to to what you did then. And I think I'd be fascinated on your advice because I'm sure others have come to you in this position of if someone was listening to this and thinking I'm going to start a consulting business here. What what is the advice you tend to give people in that position, or what would you do if you were to start Barclay again today? <laughs> All right. Well, I would because who I am, I, I would start with. I'd find some partners because I, I, I would want, I think one person on their own, it is very hard to, to cover all the different skills and, and, and what you need to do. So I would find one or two people that would complement my skills. So, you know, I'm very good at something, but I might not be good at the other things it needs. So what, one, is, one is that. I think it's obvious fact, but be really clear about what you're offering the market. Don't try and do too much. But one of the things we've, over the years, always been tempted to do slightly different things 
but stick to the knitting. It's always been a boring but good tenant, I think. Expand it, work for bigger people in greater, more complex stuff, but don't go off and do something else. A lot of successful people, because they're really good at something, think they're going to be good at everything. Back in the day, a lot of your listeners are probably too young to remember, but Clive Sinclair said, you know, got the first uh, pocket calculator in, in the country. And he then decided he'd make some electric trikes because he thought he'd be good at that <laughs> and it was a disaster. So stick to what you're good at, uh, no matter how good you are. And that's it, I think. Uh, get, some, get some help uh, to compliment you, know what you, you're, you're going to sell the market and stick to the knitting. No, re- really good advice. And I'm, I'm intrigued because of how long you've, you were with Barclay and what you've seen over, over that time. It's actually around where you think the industry is going, you know, to that point around stick to your knitting. Well, actually, do you see that knitting changing? And that could be as simple as the, the offering to clients or, you know, more systemically. I mean, you made the point around people only spending a few years in consulting firms now. I had, Barclay was predicated on, on a long-term thinking. How do you build a long-term business in a world where people are thinking of careers in much shorter timeframes? Well, I, I, again, that's a fascinating question and it's something I've been thinking about a lot because... Something I realize is really important is corporate memory. So what instills into your corporation, group of people, how they do stuff, the the tacit understanding of what this firm is all about. And it is what gives you competitive advantage. So I can sit here and describe to you what Barclay does, but you couldn't go out tomorrow and replicate it because of all the tacit knowledge, the way people behave. And that exists because of corporate memory. Now, what's been interesting to me is... Exactly as you say. What happens now when people are spending much shorter times in companies? The, 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 the memory can get lost. It can mm. fall away. Now, someone like Barclay, it's the partners who keep it because they, they, they're there. But what happens if companies, partners start staying short amounts of time? So uh, I don't have the answer, but you ask a fascinating question. <laughs> well, maybe, you know, I, I always like to offer a round two on the show. So maybe we'll come back in a, in a few months or years and you can uh, we, we can have another debate on it. Because... Uh, I really like that point around corporate memory and actually how do you how do you sustain that? Um, I think it's also a really interesting and I know point and I know we, we mentioned we talked about this before we came sort of came together for the interview of actually how some consultancies and in industry don't talk and how people put too much pride on things that are firm agnostic, you know, certain methodologies and actually the that corporate memory, a lot of the how we do stuff is much more nuanced. You know, your point of I can tell you everything about Barclay and you couldn't copy it, I think is is something so few people see i think there's still a protectionism over over oh, that ip now the ip that's what the consulting you know so you know how to draw an operating model well we all know how to draw an operating models you know you don't have to you should share all that stuff it just give everybody a shortcut to do to getting the stuff done because it's much more about how you interact with people how you influence people how you bring a team of people together how you move them forward it's not about the artifacts they're a natural byproduct, but they're not the things to protect and to hide. It's it's the way you do stuff, not what the stuff is. I think I fully agree, and uh, you know I think things as simple as the the starting premise of we start with what do we want to do? What is this a place we want to work and build? You know, build from that. So they all seem to come from the same well, yeah. same place. And I often often get uh, occasionally gets asked, you know, have you got a methodology, in house methodology? And I, my answer is no, because. Method one, if you've been at Accenture, if you've been at BP, you've got their methodology, if you've been to... I said, they're all basically the same. It's just some have got circles and some have got squares. But 
as long as you know how to get these things done and you've, you've, you've come across one of the methodologies, they all fit together. I've lost count of the number of companies I've seen asking for Prince 2. Um, and I am, you know, I'm, I'm Prince 2 qualified and I'm yet to, you know, that was, gosh, six years ago and I'm yet to ever to use it because actually those, I can't attribute it, but it's a boxer or coach of a boxer who says, you know, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. And uh, <laughs> I think it's largely the same here is, you know, you've got, you can have a great methodology, but if, you know, the whichever person you're dealing with doesn't subscribe to it or, you know, you need to, like you said, use soft skills to to bring them on the journey actually the you know it's not building lego it's doing you know that's not why people bring consultants in yeah, yeah. So, michael I've, i've really enjoyed this and i'm very conscious of of your time and also that i know we're going to have some lunch so i don't want to eat too much into that but i i want to ask just two more questions and these are ones that i ask all of my guests and i'd be really interested in your take and and please use these as a guide so take them where you want so the the first one is books i'm a big reader as anyone who listens to this knows love to get recommendations for books that have had a, a big impact on others and i'd be keen to get your take you know from be it from the 30 years be it from the last year what's the book or books that that you found yourself giving or recommending most to people and why Ah, oh, okay. So the one that I always give to my consultants is a book called Trust-Based Selling. I think it's by David Green. And uh, I, I was flicking through an airport or somewhere, going through this book, and, and why I bought it was there's, there's um, chapter, oh, there's a little bit in it about the elevator pitch. It's mm. an elevator pitch, he said. Nonsense. Okay. Said, now, you know, the, everyone asks, what's your elevator pitch? You know, your 30 seconds on who your company is and so on and so forth. He said, well, it's nonsense. He said, if you're in a, in, a, in a lift with the CEO of a company, he doesn't want to know what your company does. He wants you to ask him what his company does. <laughs> <laughs> and that was enough. I bought it. Great book. <laughs> uh, it, it encompasses a lot of the way I, I, uh, I look upon life. The other one, of course, that every consultant should read is David Meister, the management consultancy book. So my, David Meister, just as background, have to read that. And the other one that I'd, uh, I'd throw in, you've just, as you just asked, just come into my head. I think it's called On the Subject of Military Incompetence. And it's, uh, it's, it's a book which has got a number of big military failures, Arnhem, Boer War, Charge of the Light Brigade. And it describes them from uh, the psychological aspect of the commanders and why mm. it, it all went wrong. And I think if you read that business, no one's going to die. But some of the lessons that you can learn in that book absolutely brilliant i really like those recommendations i think yeah the particularly the last one you know what what you can learn from i think we can learn a lot from the military and actually what what you can learn from what's gone wrong as well as gone right you know so you you don't do it again i think the the managing the professional services firm i'm, I'm intrigued if only because and I've, i've shamefully i've not yet read it myself but my understanding from other guests who talked about it is it ascribes very much a pyramid it's you know le- leverage model And you've built the what I I can only assume is the opposite of the <laughs> the model he he ascribes. What what are the key things you took from that book that helped you in Barclay? No, so that I know. So, so it's it's like everything. It, read what other people think, and then at least make a conscious effort why you're not doing it. If that mm. makes sense. Um, but no, there's lot there's lots. Of, apart from the pyramid model, I think that, that it structures out professional services. I think his marketing chapters are very good. I think things about building relationships with your clients, how you kind of uh, talk to them about solutions, not not just trying to structure the problems. Uh, no, very, a very good book. I once went on one of his talks. Uh, he's much better in a book than he is talking. 
<laughs> well, well, we'll put the recommendation. We'll, we'll put the recommendation for the book in. Um, I believe he's now retired, so there won't be any won't be any more talks. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll put the recommendation for the book. And I, I like that point around actually, even if it's a differing view or you, you know, it's not your perspective. Just it's good to understand it, so you can think about it and then just decide where where to take it. And I think you're. You know, I, I will also read the, the trust based sales because I think so often in consulting people talk without listening you know myspace is is more the marketing side but the amount of thought it's called thought leadership it rarely ever leads and it's not always got much thought but a lot of what is put out by many consulting firms is really my thought on a topic instead of how i can help my clients solve that topic but that's we'll we'll talk further about that afterwards so um the last the, the very last question then michael and i appreciate given the the way barclay's been structured you 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 might have to get to to just give your recommendations for some of this, but the question is: you have three people in front of you, and you have one who is just entering consulting. You have one who is around manager level, so you know where you would start to to bring them in, and you have one who is approaching a partnership or a, an equity decision. So there'll be that sort of what I would have known as director level. They might be about to go into a partnership. They might be thinking about other things. and And the question is simply: what one piece of advice would you give to to each of them? For the first chap, I would uh, parody Mr. Kennedy and say, do not ask what your company can do for you, ask what you can do for your company. And what I mean by that is take on everything. So I think uh, people entering consultancy, sometimes worried about what job they're going to do, what's happening, they think too much about it. What I say is grab everything because in any assignment, you can find the good in it. Don't look for why it's not for you. So don't be too picky is what I'd say to the first people. Who's the second guy? Uh, so that would be a manager. So something sort of the most junior person in your, mm. you know, at Barclay you'd hire. Yeah, so, so I'd, say, I'd say there, start working on your soft skills now. You are somebody that is a point where you are good at what you're doing. You are technically proficient. You know what you're doing. Do not be a subject matter expert. Start building relationships, start working on all the soft side of the skills that you need to do. How do you influence people? How do you walk into a room and people want to listen to you? How do you sit there at a table with some directors and you know what they're saying is not what they mean? Get those soft skills, start honing them. And then the final person is someone approaching partner. Approaching partner. So I would say, think really carefully that this is what you want to do. This is a step, as I said earlier, you know, this is something that is not bestowed upon you. This is something you need to want because you're going to spend the next 15 years of your life doing this and you're not going to go anywhere else. This is now stopping all your other options. So just be really sure it's what you want. Brilliant. Well, I think, Michael, that is a, a great place for us to wrap up. So, so thank you very much for today. I say it's having, as I, I mentioned to you before, and I, I haven't asked if I can use his name, so I won't, but a, a, a friend of the family actually who used to work for your firm was the reason I got into consulting so I've always known a little bit about Barclay but it's been great to to find out a lot more and the story and the heritage and and all of those nuances and, and where they came from so I, I've really enjoyed this and I, I know my listeners will get a lot out of it if people want to find out more about you or or get in touch you know, where would you point them to where can they find you oh LinkedIn I'm on LinkedIn Okay. Contact me there. Fantastic. Well, I'll put a link to your profile there and people can, can connect if they want to find out more. Well, Michael, thank you very much and all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you. It's a pleasure. 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb In Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.